Hi, I'm Kay Songa. I'm a mindfulness and meditation teacher at Headspace. I teach some of the courses like the basics and some of the sleep meditations. If you're curious about mindfulness and meditation, the basics course is a great way to get started. Allow yourself to head to the App Store and download the Headspace app today. Hope to see you there. was a man of excellent imagination and a heroic capacity for grunt work, just doing what had to be done. His short suit was in human relationships. No one has a view into a person like the person's child. Armand Azarinsky. He's a man himself now, retired with a whole story of his own. But a story he often tells has to do with his late father, Eugene Azarinsky, the man who discovered the phenomenon known as REM sleep. The belief was that nothing is happening. And that this vast continent is barren. No one had found a way to look inside it. It's like your dad used like a, without a key, he got, he opened a door with like just a paper clip or something and then. Yes. Yeah. It was a kind of eureka moment that my father had, you know, sort of jostle me, wake, wake me up and, and say, what was going on? Maybe REM sounds like a simple enough idea. Our eyes move while we sleep. Rapid eye movements, REM. But the implications are profound. Our brain keeps whirring when our body is at rest. We possess an inner core, a soul that remains always in motion. Uh, The discovery of REM showed that the mind is active all through the night that we have an inner world that um, continues through, through the day, through the night, and that we're, we're constantly a human, that we, we think uh, at night as we think during the day. And it's, it's really interesting that uh, the essence of, uh, of who we are is, is reflected in, in not only our daytime thinking, but our nighttime thinking. That's the voice of Lynn Lamberg. For decades, she's written about the group of researchers who opened the door onto a new view of sleep. Nathaniel Kleitman, William Dement, Michelle Jouvet, and the man who jimmied the lock, Eugene Azarinsky. The door opened and everyone saw the continent of sleep as it actually is, shimmering with life, with bees, birds, all of it. But it wasn't like Eugene's life was idyllic after that discovery. He was defined by it in that he spent the rest of his life feeling like somehow he had uh, found the pot of gold and dropped it. (laughs) 
Eugene Azarinsky was the outsider who somehow masters the game faster than the natives. Sleep was never his interest. He'd been born in New York City to immigrants from modern-day Ukraine. His dad was a dentist, so Eugene figured that's what he would do too, dentistry. Only he was partially blind in one eye. He had poor depth perception. He was lousy at surgery. And as he discovered, he hated teeth. He dropped out of dental school, got drafted to fight in World War II, survived D-Day, eventually came home to reunite with his wife and young son. That's Armand. So here is this guy who's essentially has no college diploma. He's a dental school dropout. He applied to the University of Chicago with his strange record because Chicago, at least in the graduate school, was pretty good at taking extremely bright, promising students who had an unusual background. And he was a veteran. I mean, let's face it, you know, they looked good. So they look over his credential, okay, you can come. And what are you going to do? So he knew that he had done well in the pre-clinical stuff, as it's called, in dent school. And he did well in his biology courses to it in college. So he says, I'll study physiology. And so we, I think it was 1949, I had just turned six. We went to Chicago. He'd never been there before. We had no idea. We actually flew. I took my first airplane ride in 1949. And he was brave in a way, you know, a wife and a kid. And he's going out to Chicago. Eugene gets to Chicago, not yet 30 years old, with a wife and son, funded by the GI Bill. It's not an easy life. He's paid a paltry salary. They live in a series of basements. A daughter is born. She would later recount to a reporter the time her dad stole potatoes to feed the family. His wife would fall into a depression after their daughter's birth. At school, the only advisor in the physiology department with space to take a new student on was a man named Nathaniel Kleitman. Kleitman was obsessed with sleep, with how the body reacted to it. He was old school, meticulous, the kind of guy who'd leave a door locked rather than use a paperclip. His efforts to make sense of a sleeping body dealt in what Armand calls the externals. When do you go to sleep? When do you wake up? What's your body temperature when you sleep versus when you're awake? Sort of marking it as a distinct territory. Sleep from the outside looks like this. Kleitman wasn't timid, exactly. He'd made headlines back when Eugene was a teenager— for sleeping in a cave for a month with an assistant to track how sunlight affects sleep. He was a legend in his own way. Maybe some young PhD candidate would have been happy to be placed with him. But Eugene, he was full of energy. And the study of sleep, it wasn't particularly energizing. 
most people didn't think of sleep as other than um, a time of rest, or many people thought of sleep as a, um, a chore. Some people still do today that, oh, I wish I didn't have to sleep. I would like to stay up and do all the things I have to do. Eugene had his family, his goals. He wanted to get the PhD, become a professor. So he buckles down to produce a dissertation with his advisor. And Kleitman, he's fixated on blinks. He's gotten hung up on this idea that people blink at a faster rate as they're moving towards sleep. And then they stop. It was a theory he'd read about in a scientific journal, right up his alley, all about external changes. So he sets Azarinsky onto a task. His advisee has to count blinks as subjects fall asleep. And because it was tricky to observe adults, they were too aware, the subjects were on the young side. Imagine just sitting next to a sleeping baby and trying to watch their eyes for hours at a time. So this elegantly muscled guy who looked a little like a bullfighter is sitting up close to sleepy babies counting blinks. Meanwhile, his young son Armand would prowl the university, a place he describes the way I imagine the Beast's castle in Beauty and the Beast. Grand but stuffy, full of mysteries you're not meant to probe. Very 19th century, everything was made out of wood. The buildings were very old. And so it was interesting to me. It was like uh, going to a science museum and looking at things from the past, you know. At some point, Eugene decides there might be a more interesting, effective way to count blinks. It would require this new machine out in Germany. This newfangled device called an EEG. The EEG, or electroencephalogram, it's become a mainstay in labs across the world. But at that time, it was a raw instrument full of potential. It records the tiniest of electrical motions, the zaps that control all movement. We all produce electricity at all times. So Azarinsky wonders about attaching this sensitive new machine to people's skulls. Stop mapping just the outside and move in. Track blinks and then some. Don't rely simply on powers of observation. He's human after all, he might miss something. With a machine, he'd be able to see all the activity produced by a brain, not only in the lead up to sleep, but all through a night. He was taking a very primitive rocket. He was taking the 1938 rocket to the moon, essentially. In a sense, every sleep lab in the world, the discoveries of sleep apnea, of insomnia, of common sleep conditions, they all owe a debt to Azarinsky's curiosity, his originality, his willingness to try something hard. You could call his the first true sleep lab. In it, he demonstrated to the world the power of the EEG to map the sleeping brain. Lynn, she likens that discovery to a force of nature. Like that's that proverbial snowball at the top of a mountain um, that grows bigger and bigger as it, it rolls down the hill. And so today, thousands of papers are published on all aspects of sleep. 
and those got their start way back in 1950, in early 1950s in a tiny laboratory at the University of Chicago. It's not as if other people weren't already interested in the sleeping mind. Before Azarinsky was even born, Sigmund Freud made dreams matter. His book, The Interpretation of Dreams, published at the turn of the 19th century, argued that a person's entire psyche could be understood through their dreams. But there was confusion. How long did they last? Maybe they occurred in a split second, right at the moment of waking. There was a theory. That the entire dream was um, instantaneous, that your sense of time elapsing was an illusion. A dream is instantaneous and probably something that you have as you're waking up so that it's all made up. It's all it's all vapor, right? There's, there's nothing, nothing here, folks. Eugene, he had no interest in Freud, in psychology. Hot air, one of his favorite uh, uh, expressions, you know, just hot air. Both Azarinsky and Kleidman were disdainful because they thought that that was a, not a scientific approach. I mean, Freud's uh, efforts couldn't be measured in a way you could you could measure physiologic functions. You could you could measure blood, and you can measure brainwaves with an EEG. And it turned out there was a primitive hulking one sitting at the University of Chicago, a prototype made by an engineer who went on to manufacture them, a large difficult, unwieldy thing. Big light bulbs with lots of glowing filaments. My father was not an engineer. He had no background in this stuff. And so he sort of does a crash course in in, uh, electronics. And he needs a skull to attach it to, to say, am I getting anything? Hello, is anyone there? So long before he was ready, to run subjects, he had to get a stable system going. I mean, he thought, where am I going to get somebody day after day to try out various aspects of this thing and get it going? I don't have 10 years, you know. He needed a willing, handy subject. The first thing I understood at the age of eight is that it it was measuring something that I was putting out. In no way was he putting electricity into me. So I wasn't going to get a shock. Nothing was being done to my brain. It was safe. So I had no questions that way. And I desperately wanted to be helpful. It's not exactly a father-son bonding story from the canon. First of all, there were the electrodes, which were large, metal. I mean, they were not nice things at all. How do you get them to stay on the head, right? So you pull the hair apart, you take a razor blade, and you scrape away at the scalp. I kid you not. At the scalp or at the hair? No, no, the scalp. Then you get a tube of what's called collodion, which is a 
gooey salt water paste. And you put some of that on the scalp and on the electrode. You put the electrode now is on the head in this salt water goo on the, on a slightly raw spot on your scalp. And you tape it down with a lot of adhesive tape. Right? It's a mess. And there's a bunch of them required. You're gonna do the eyes, he's gonna do several on the head, he's got to do on the front of the head, the back of the head, the sides of the head, right? God forbid, after all of that, you should have to go to the bathroom. Sometimes it sounds like Armand really worships his dad. And then sometimes it sounds like the opposite, like he only sees fault. Even me, I feel a lot for Eugene. There's something compelling about him, heroic and weak, the range of human capability expressed in a single life. He clawed his way into a place that holds secrets about the meaning of human existence, opened that space up for everyone to enter, but didn't seem to understand or care to understand the material inside. It's poignant to me that you were his, you were his subject, you know, his son. And, and just as you're describing your family kind of disintegrating and his work being this very strong magnetizing force, I don't know, there's something very poignant in that to me that you were kind of brought into his work, but the family and the home was not, he was, I don't know. It sounds like something was missing there. Absolutely. Uh, you'll like this image. The dining room table was always full of his research papers. Yeah. And, and you were in the lab, like that was your home. On the one hand, it's this incredible model to see adults compelled in this way that feels youthful, right? Also, it's like, it's it's being a child. It's it's discovery and, um, but then- Something other than money. That's right. There's something noble in it, but it, it sort of makes a family structure very difficult or it can feel secondary. Yes, don't bother your father. He's, he's busy saving humanity, essentially, right? So how can you, how can you be so selfish, right? This is the great man is working. So um, everything revolved around that. One day, as Azarinsky is fiddling around, he decides the machine seems responsive. He's tracking alpha waves, which were known to be generated during waking hours. So he moves to the next stage of the experiment. Doing his usual calibration and cursing and stomping around and nothing was working. And, and finally, it's, it's running. Okay. And then he said, let's just see what happens. Go ahead and just lie here. And fall asleep if you can. And after a while, and I don't know how long, I think it was minutes, I think it was within an hour, 
he woke me up. I know that I had been asleep and he said, what was going on? And I said, oh, I was having a dream. What was the dream? Do you remember? All I recall about it is for some reason it involved a rooster. And I told him that. And I remember this was very interesting to him, very interesting. And can you do it again? And that kind of thing. And I think we played with it some more a different day because I was pretty well done with falling asleep on command that day. But then we did a couple more and he was ready to fly. Eugene saw something, a period of intense, rapid eye movement that correlated with brainwave activity. And when he woke Armand up during that inexplicable time of action, he found that the kid had been dreaming. He tells Kleitman, Kleitman, well, there's Lynn's version of his reaction. It's true that Kleitman, um, who was a... uh really a uh, meticulous researcher and wanted to have every, every uh, T crossed and every I dotted, um, wanted to be sure that what you just described wasn't happening. And so he did ask his own daughter, Esther, to sleep in the lab um, so that um, he could be sure that she w- was not um, trying to fool him by pretending to be asleep and just moving her eyes. And then there's Armand's. Clayton was a skin flint and didn't, you know, you're going to do this all night. And, you know, uh, and the other thing that he didn't like was me. Not personally, but he said, Azarinsky, you've done this on your son, right? He said, I want someone that I know. Not related to you. Not related to you. (laughs) Kleitman's daughter, Esther, enters this makeshift sleep lab. Kleitman eventually enters, too, to sleep. And again and again, Azarinsky notes rapid eye movements and brainwave activity, recorded on the paper printouts of the EEG at regular intervals. It seems as if the brain never rests, as if it's on a timer to move into high gear at specific periods throughout a night. And each time, when he wakes the sleeper up during these periods of activity, they mention a dream. Coming up, the paper that changed the world. Oxytocin. It can also help with relaxation and sleep. 
So it was great when I discovered Headspace, because the app is filled with extremely high-quality ASMR. My favorites are the sleep casts. Lately, I've been listening to the desert campfire in Night Town. There's a lot of ASMR online, but in the app, the sounds and fidelity are so high-quality. If you're interested and would like to hear more, head to the App Store and just search Headspace. Okay, enjoy the rest of the episode. It turned out again and again and again. I mean, whenever he did it with successive subjects, he got the same result. He would wake them up when they're when the movement was really intense and it turned out they were dreaming usually? Yes, yes. And it solved questions that had been going on for as long as man had been alive. How long is a dream? Sometimes your subjective sensation is that the dream went on all night. I don't think anyone has ever recorded one dream that went on all night, you know, a couple of minutes to under an hour. That's it. There's no such a thing as an all night dream. And these peculiar eye movements, which you could actually see once you learned what they looked like, you could spot them. And the chances are that you'd be correct that what was going on in the brain as well were these particular brain waves. And when the eyes are doing this and you get the certain brain wave, it's all of a piece. That's the dream state. Lynn, in a piece about Azarinsky's early lab, describes it almost like a chicken coop. The dreams, they're the chicks. And in this lab, Azarinsky was able to catch them freshly hatched. Even people who claim they don't dream, if you put them in a sleep lab, one of the modern descendants of Azarinsky's scrappy first one. They will be shown to have REM periods. They just don't remember their dreams. And dreams have a kind of effervescent quality. If you want to remember your dreams, you're much better able to do it than if you just wake up and start thinking about, hmm, what shall I have for breakfast? Azarinsky stumbled on a new sense of sleep entirely, not a time of suspension, but a sort of alternate version of being awake, a time of movement, of regularity. Over the years, a clearer sense of the pattern has emerged. REM sleep occurs in all humans and some animals, and barring any sleep disorders, people experience a standard progression of REM episodes. Four or five, approximately every 90 minutes, with the, the first episode being relatively short, maybe just a few minutes, and the last episode, possibly 45 minutes or an hour, maybe even longer. These episodes coincide with dreaming. We don't dream in amorphous ways, in split seconds or for entire nights, as was previously believed. We seem to dream in a patterned format matched to REM. The dreaming part of the night has been likened to seeing a a preview for a a film and then a snippet of the film. And then finally, as the night goes on, you get the whole feature film. In 1968, 
the researcher Michelle Jouvet defined REM sleep as a state unto itself, paradoxical sleep, he called it, because the mind is so active while the body is at rest. We are doing things, though we might appear dead to the world. REM is a vital part of the human experience, Jouvet argued. Different from both sleep and waking, and he called it a third state of existence. Back to 1953, Azarinsky gets a grant, recruits sleepers amidst suspicions growing in post-war America that scientists might do strange things to people in labs. It's painstaking work, involving many nights spent awake, monitoring the EEG records printed in an adjoining room, fretting about the cost of ink, of paper, waking people up to query about dreams. He writes up his results, publishes them as his PhD dissertation, maybe one of the most famous PhD dissertations ever written, still cited at an unusual rate in top journals today. It even made the New York Times when it came out. I mean, it was a two-inch article, but to have a, a leading report by a young researcher in the New York Times was truly amazing. The hook, the reason people cared, was this notion that someone had cracked a code to do with dreams. And that was enticing because people were very interested in dreams um, and have been since ancient times. I mean, in ancient Greek, there were temples devoted to dreams and dreams were regarded as a way of uh, getting messages from the gods, our messages um, that could aid in healing the soul. But sleep research was also forever changed from a practical perspective with the introduction of the EEG as a tool to monitor a sleeper. Once the area had been sort of cracked open, they discovered a medical application. Anybody can hook up an EEG machine now. The, the, the torture is taken out of it. <laughs> and the, the recordings are so much better. The early ones were very noisy and you had to sort of, it was like listening to an old-fashioned phonograph record with all the crackles. The paper changed things closer to home, too. Armand thought of it years later while he worked on his own PhD. He was haunted by it, really. A thing like that, if you want a little personal note on it, makes it very hard to do your own dissertation because... What was I discovering? You know, it's like an actor getting an Academy Award for uh, leading leading role, right? The, the, the biggest Oscar prize as the freshman outing, right? And then... Student film or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it does make it hard. Uh, sets up all kinds of competitive desires and counter-dependent competitive and all kinds of things. Armand, he chose the sort of career that his dad might wave off. He's retired now, but for years he worked as a clinical psychologist. His graduate work had to do with the mind, with physiology, but also with dreams, with interpretation. 
what his dad might call hot air. When it came out, the paper caused distress for Eugene, too. For one, he was upset that he had to put Kleitman's name on it as an author. And then Kleitman asked him to do an even stranger thing amid all the press, to hide in a room next door while Kleitman answers questions from a reporter. I mean, in my experience as a reporter, when a PhD candidate has um, a newsworthy PhD dissertation or presents, let's say, as is common today, um, an abstract of that or a brief talk about that at a meeting, I might do an interview with that young person and the professor might be on the phone at the same time, but not say a word (laughs) or maybe step in to say, well, this was good because. What happened here, Kleitman wanted to do it all himself. And did, did, and didn't have Azarinsky present in the room. He had Azarinsky hiding um, behind the door in the next room and told him to let him know if um, he had said anything that was incorrect afterwards. So that seems very strange to me. Very, and- very strange. And I wouldn't have believed it if Kleitman himself hadn't written about it. Eugene, he's starting to get the sense he won't get his due. Maybe it's all the people around him who are the problem. Armand, when I asked him why his dad's career wasn't set by that paper, he had a different answer. He blamed his father. Well, here's where you can begin to question his personality. The job offers aren't rolling in. Maybe it's his issues with Kleitman, or maybe it's that these things take time. But Eugene has a family to feed, so he takes the first job he can get out in Seattle in a fisheries department, not his field. And then, while he's out there, a better offer comes in. Jefferson University in Philadelphia, a major medical school. They came out, they interviewed him, they had seen the write-up. At that point, my mother was busy disintegrating mentally. She never recovered from the birth of my sister. And it was all downhill. So he gets this job. He's having all kinds of domestic problems. He's out sometimes for several days coping with my mother, you know, so forth and so on. So uh, it started out doing work. After a year away from it, he'd gone right back into sort of tinkering with uh, electronics, measuring brain waves. Again, he's sort of looking for inspiration while he's just trying to stay alive uh, in the department because of his erratic schedule and dealing with my mother. She died in 1957. Takes him a couple of years really to recover. He just keeps diddling away. At work, he's in another tense relationship with a boss, a man who doesn't care much for the brain, more the physiological functioning of organs like the stomach, the gut, more earthy machinery. Nearly a decade passes this way. 
And then around 59 or 60, he goes to a meeting of the American Society for Sleep Research or something. Uh, I have to be careful because if you do it wrong, give it the wrong name, then the, uh, the abbreviation for it is ASS. You don't want that. So he goes to it. He's never been to such a meeting, but by then, seven years have elapsed since he made the splash with the discovery. In seven years, there's now a very active interest in sleep. And sleep labs are being set up. Uh, The name Dement has become prominent. William Dement, he's kind of the golden boy to Azarinsky's black sheep. He'd been a medical student at Chicago who'd added on a PhD. He'd worked as an assistant during Azarinsky's groundbreaking trials. And while Azarinsky was upset that he'd shared billing on the paper with Kleitman, there was really a more glaring issue, according to Lynn. That it didn't have the men's name on it because he participated in that research starting from the time he was a second year medical student. And if you were able to look at all of the records of the night's sleep, um, you will see on some of them that the sleeper is WD and the observer is EA, and on the others that vice versa through the night. Azarinsky, in his memoir, says Dement could be a fairly unreliable companion, that he actually fell asleep when it was his turn to monitor sleepers. Dement, moreover, had been obsessed with the dream records, with the meaning of the dreams themselves. On this, Azarinsky and Kleitman were in rare agreement. They believed that the mind of the sleeper was not functioning very well. It was a sort of like the babblings of a drunk person. But the, but Dement was interested in what was happening uh, in, in terms of consciousness. So there Dement is, focused on the soft stuff, sleeping on the job, yet on the rise in a field that owed so much to Azarinsky himself. Meanwhile, as Azarinsky would tell his son, that conference revealed how far he'd fallen in those same seven years. The story he tells is that he's sitting in the audience listening to people present papers, and I think uh, eating his own liver in, in anger about this. And someone looks at his name tag and says, you're Azarinsky. And he says, yes, Jesus Christ, we thought you were dead. Nothing has been heard of you since 1953. They assumed he'd vanished. The field had gone on without him. It was at that moment that I said to him, and I remember very clearly, Dad, you absolutely have to get back into sleep. Uh, You know, life has steadied out for you now, you know. The ship is running on all engines. Get back into it. It's not that Eugene didn't try. 
After Armand encouraged him to get back into the game, he worked at it. Sets up a sleep lab at a nearby hospital that gave him some space. And he starts doing sleep research again after a seven-year hiatus. And, and he did some interesting stuff. As usual, it was cutting edge. It was labor-intensive. It was sort of horrible to do. He realized early on that he needed at least a co-worker, another guy with a PhD who had some real training in this stuff. But that would mean working with a colleague and, well... I never heard him work with one where he didn't have utter contempt for the guy. And maybe he was scared. What was he going to find that was anywhere at the same level, right? After you've discovered a new continent or that it's not a barren rock, you know, uh, what's next? What's your next trick? And I think he was haunted by that. Life was moving. Armand got married. Eugene refused to attend the wedding. He just found some ridiculous excuse for not being able to attend the wedding. He didn't want anything to do with me anymore. I made some egregious error. So years afterward, at the urging of one of my therapists, I I contacted him. He was overjoyed and immediately invited us over to his house. And we found that he was within weeks of moving out of the Philadelphia area where we, you know, uh, I still lived up there too. And he was going to West Virginia to head up a fledgling department of physiology in a medical school in West Virginia, which is not exactly the, the big leagues, right? And he went there because he was so disliked by the administration. After years and years of being there and doing some credible research, you know, he was not a failure and uh, being voted a number of times uh, best lecturer, you know, that he was successful in his work. They hated him. And they also felt, I think, correctly, which was more important than just disliking him, that there's no way he could handle the interpersonal aspects of running a department. And when I got home again to the Philadelphia suburbs, we kept up a regular routine of telephone calls. I'm talking about the late 1970s here. It's a long time ago, right? They were still like long distance calls. You know, you sort of, it was significant to make a phone call. And what I found is that after I called him, he would immediately, within 24 hours, return the call. And it occurred to me that he was counting that only after I called would he make a phone call. 
that he was not initiated. There was no unpleasantness between us, but a week went by and I, I didn't make a phone call. Now, did he call? No, because that would have been two phone calls for him. And until he died, he never called. That is, that's tragic. Isn't it? 20 years went by between that last call and Eugene's death. 20 years when neither father nor son picked up the phone. You're, you're a clinical psychiatrist with a PhD. Psychologist. Um, psychologist. psychologist, sorry. Yes. When I think of like your father and your mother, it feels like a kind of a reconciliation in a way. Like, Oh, I think uh, absolutely. It's no accident. If you had a mother who died of cancer, maybe you become a medical doctor and go into cancer. You know, I went into mental illness uh, treatment and to understand uh, her to understand him, to understand my own life. Mm-hmm. I spent many years in my own personal therapy. Uh, it, it made me a believer in the process. You know, what you try to do is salvage what you can from a complicated life like that. There was much that was painful and not particularly useful. But some of it was, and I try to keep what was good and what was courageous in him. When his wife died, people put pressure on him to uh, give up his children. I was had just turned 14, my sister was five, and people said, Gene, you, you can't go on. And how will you raise two children? The year was 1957, right? And he said, basically, I don't know, but I won't do that. Mm. And so the whole endeavor of, of science and good medicine is about doing the right thing, applying knowledge to do the right thing. I mean, what do you think about REM as a discovery? It has led to a great amassing of more knowledge. But it's bits and pieces. We don't really understand how the brain does what it does. What is the human mind? What does it mean? Neurology, neurophysiology has has become a lot like astronomy. We have these great devices now that peer farther and farther out into space and discover weirder and weirder formations, stars that are a billion times larger than the sun. And we're getting closer and closer to the time when the the universe as we understand it began. But obviously there had to be something there before. We have no idea. No. No. <laughs> We're no closer. That's <laughs> very frustrating. <laughs> right? It all seems still very mysterious. 
we know more and more of the mechanics and let still know more about the big question. If life is mysterious, so are people. You can analyze them and talk about them and poke and prod and get no closer to understanding what makes a person tick. Lynn, she met Eugene Azarinsky once, toward the end of his life. She met him and Nathaniel Kleitman, his old boss, when both were old men at a conference. She's a relative stranger, an outsider, not family, and she describes a sympathetic figure in Azarinsky, a contrast to Kleitman. In late life, Azarinsky was an amiable guy and Kleitman was somewhat prickly. I do feel for Azarinsky as a young uh, graduate student with a uh, family, uh, two children, uh, struggling to get by on whatever meager salary he was paid. Um, it must have been very tough, plus his schedule. I mean, to be up all night observing these people. And then during the day, he probably had to write that up and do, maybe do coursework and uh, read papers and also be a parent to his children and a husband to his wife. The University of Chicago is still a home in a way for dreams. Lynn told me about another major figure, Rosalind Cartwright not cited among the godfathers of sleep research, but a legend nonetheless. Rosalind died last year at the age of 98. Amid all these men who put little stock in dream interpretation, she was building her own temple. She'd bring participants into her lab at UChicago and have them sleep and record their dreams. And she... um looked at those dreams and talked about those dreams with people in waking lives and explored the possibility of scripting new endings for the dreams. I mean, I recall one celebrated dream of a woman who kept dreaming that she was drowning. And uh, after talking with Cartwright and talking about the fact that indeed she did know how to swim, uh, the next time she had that dream, she remembered in the dream that she could swim and swam back to shore. And this, this helped her to begin to uh, move past her depression. Maybe it sounds fanciful, but I like to think of an alternate world where Armand is a subject in this lab too. His dad caught dreams, but didn't put much stock in them. And yet in the same university, Another researcher learned to adjust dreams, tinker with them, in order to adjust and change what happens outside of them, to change the dreamer. Eugene isn't here anymore, but Armand is, and he holds the story of his life, of his father. He seems to be trying to change it, as if it's a dream, and it's his to change. Even Freud, you know, trapped in the male chauvinism of the Victorian period, even Freud figured out, and this is a quote from him, 
The dream belongs to the dreamer. And you never have uh, your own interpretation of the dream. It, it, you could guess, you could surmise, but the definitive one comes from the person who dreamt the dream. It's their dream. Next time on Hibernation, a visit to the astral plane. Hibernation is brought to you by Headspace Studios in partnership with Spoke Media. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow us in Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. Our show is written and hosted by me, Malika Rao. We're produced by senior producer James Kim, with help from myself, Erica Huang, Brigham Mosley, Tamira Pierre, and researched by Hannah Ray Montgomery. Our coordinating producer is Sharita Lynn Solis, with additional production help from Cody Hoffmachel, Kelly Kolf, Evan Arnett, and Will Short. Original music and sound design by Erica Huang, with engineering by ABF Creative. Additional music from Firstcom. Our spoke executive producers are Keisha TK Dutess, with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tabakolian. Our Headspace executive producers are Leah Sutherland with Morgan Seltzer and Sam Rogaway. Special thanks to the folks you heard from today, Armand Azarinsky and Lynn Lamberg.